This is the 10,000 Depositions Later podcast, episode 82. I'm Jim Garrity. Today's topic, testimonial privileges, specifically the legislative privilege. All right. Hey, everybody. I hope you're having a great week. Today's episode kicks off another new occasional series this year on what I call privilege-bearing witnesses. And by that, I mean witnesses who, because of their position or status, have a privilege against being deposed. We're all familiar, of course, with the attorney-client privilege, which generally allows lawyers and clients protection against testifying about their communications. But there are many other kinds of testimonial privileges, some of which you are going to be familiar with, and some you may not, simply because one or more of them may not be recognized in your particular jurisdiction. So, for example, testimonial privileges include the physician-patient privilege, the accountant-client privilege, spousal privileges, uh, privileges governing conversations with clergy, privileges governing journalists, uh, legislative privileges, which we're going to cover today, settlement negotiation privileges, privileges against self-incrimination, and judicial privilege, state secrets privilege, executive privilege, on and on. So I've just rattled off about a dozen examples, but there are many more, and there are subcategories within each privilege. For example, within the physician-patient privilege, your jurisdiction may also extend testimonial privileges to psychotherapists, social workers, mental health counselors, and others in related uh, occupations. In this episode, I'm gonna talk about legislative privilege to kick off this series. I will eventually cover all of the privileges and their nuances in this series of episodes, but I'm not going to do them back to back because I think that would just be a little too obnoxious. But I do want to cover them all because I've had more than a few litigators ask me, for example, the best way to gather information about knowledge held by lawyers, doctors, accountants, and so on, since they can't be deposed. Well, that's wrong. And one purpose of this series is to make crystal clear that all of these witnesses, all of these privilege-bearing witnesses can be deposed, all of them. Now, sometimes you have to make a threshold showing to the judge. And in those cases where a threshold showing is required, in other words, for example, that the witness definitely has personal knowledge, and where you've made that threshold showing, courts have generally held that you may depose the witness and the attorney for the witness can evaluate your inquiries on a question-by-question basis and instruct the witness as needed not to answer a specific question as appropriate to protect the privilege. But what I want you to take away from this series and this episode is that privilege-bearing witnesses can be deposed and you should not shy away from doing so. They frequently have a great deal of discoverable information. Indeed, they generally have a privilege precisely because what they know often goes to the very heart of the issues in your case. So that will be the underlying theme in all upcoming uh, privilege-bearing witness episodes, that you should not reflexively shy away from deposing them. In fact, your reflexive instinct should be the opposite. Your reflexive thinking should be that they can be deposed, that you will depose them, and that appropriate objections can simply be made during the course of your examination. Remember that privileges in every jurisdiction are narrowly construed because they run contrary to the general notion that relevant information should be discoverable. In fact, let's start with the following observation from the U.S. Supreme Court, and they say that testimonial exclusionary rules in privileges 
contravene the fundamental principle that the public has the right to everyone's evidence. As such, the court said, privileges must be strictly construed and accepted only to the very limited extent that permitting a refusal to testify or excluding relevant evidence has a public good that goes above and beyond the normally dominant principle of using all rational means to get to the truth. That's the Trammell case in the show notes. So again, today's topic deals with legislative privilege. Now this privilege can have wide application. In other words, it can apply to a surprising number of people. It's applicable not just to senators and members of Congress at the federal level, but also state senators, obviously, state representatives, governors, city and county commissions, city managers, clerks, planning and zoning board members, and aides or personal staff to all of those folks. In the realm of legislative privilege, if you're encountering a witness that's asserting that privilege, the general rule is this. If the matter in question involves votes or conversations or deliberations on legislation of broad applicability to the constituents or the community served by the legislators, there's likely a testimonial privilege that would preclude you from deposing the legislator, city manager, assistant, whatever. But you want to make sure you do your homework anytime one of your planned opponents raises the legislative privilege. Their counsel might just bury you in cases that say a legislative immunity or privilege applies to folks in the positions I mentioned a moment ago. And at face value, if you haven't seen the other side of the case law, it might seem from their cases that there is in fact no point in going any further. But again, there are many exceptions to the legislative privilege rule. So for example, if the actions in dispute are in fact administrative, then courts have generally held there is no legislative privilege against testifying, even if the actions in question are the actions of someone who falls into the broad category of a legislator or engaging in the legislative process. One of the most common exceptions involves hiring decisions. Many courts have said that if a legislative body or if a city or county manager, those folks are involved in a hiring, promotion, suspension, termination decision, those are not the kinds of functions to which the legislative privilege applies. Same things with actions uh, by a legislative body that have a more individualized impact, such as where local legislators or zoning board members, for example, terminate a lease between the county or the city and a private party at a county or city-owned facility. Courts have said that these more localized, individualized actions are not legislation as we think of it and are not legislative actions. So the general principle, the general notion or rule of thumb that you want to zero in on in this situation is that legislative privileges protect those performing legislative acts. So the focus of your analysis is on the nature of the action or act in question. And that's the holding or the principle in the Bogan case in the show notes. Bogan is a 1998 U.S. Supreme Court decision, and it's a leading case on this topic. Uh, you'll frequently see it cited in court decisions and likely in papers filed in opposition to your efforts uh, to depose legislators. Or if you represent the legislators, uh, it's a case you'll likely be citing to oppose those depositions. Uh, again, if you happen to be representing someone uh, asserting the legislative privilege. So Bogan holds that the inquiry in this situation is whether a particular act reflects a discretionary policy-making decision implicating the budgetary priorities of the city 
and the services the city or whatever the entity is uh, provides to its constituents. The more specifically focused the action is, the more likely it is that a court's going to find that the legislative acts in a particular situation are in fact administrative and the more general community affected by the action, the more likely a court will find that it's a legislative act. So for example, actions held uh, to be legislative include a decision to rezone property in a community. That's the Bryan case in the show notes. A decision on where to locate a halfway house in a community, which the courts have said involves notions of community-wide safety and security. That's the Bannum case in the show notes. Also held to be a legislative act are budget decisions. That's the Rattaray case in the show notes. Uh, voting, that's the Alvedi case. Working on committees and speech and debate, also both from the Alvedi case. And also included within the privilege, the work of legislative staff members, officers, or other employees of a legislative body. That's the Pataki case, P-A-T-A-K-I, in the show notes. Examples of actions held not to be legislative are terminating a legislative researcher or other employees. That's the gross decision in the show notes. And employment decisions in general. That's the Forrester case involving the firing of a probation officer and also the Washington Suburban case, uh, again in the show notes. A few more examples of conduct or acts deemed to be outside the notion of legislation and more in the nature of administrative work includes actions done by outsiders uh, for the arguable benefit of legislators, such as political consultants independently contracted to provide services to legislators, including lobbyists. And again, the termination and non-renewal of leases at an airport, that's the Hicks case. So evaluate the conduct in question very carefully. Was it a broad legislative act, a matter of widespread impact on the community, or was it something very narrow? Legislative acts, the ones for which privileges are granted, typically involve the adoption of prospective legislative type rules that establish a general policy affecting the larger population. And they generally bear the outward marks of public decision-making, including the observance in the process of formal legislative procedures. Do you have that? If you are defending a legislator or someone who wants to assert the privilege and you are trying to block a deposition, remember that legislative privilege isn't necessarily limited to individuals holding a legislative title or one that sounds like it. So when an official outside the legislative branch is performing legislative functions, which involve steps that are at the core of the legislative process, there's still an argument that the legislative testimonial of privilege attaches to that individual. A couple of other points and then we'll wrap up. Remember, regardless of which side of the fence you're on in this particular kind of dispute, that the privilege, uh, the legislative privilege, like every other kind of privilege, can be lost. Uh, that's the Singleton case in the show notes. In that particular case, uh, legislators were actively participating in litigation relating to a legislative act. The court there held that the legislators waived their, both their immunity against being sued and their testimonial privilege against being deposed by actively participating uh, in the litigation. Again, that's the Singleton case, but this privilege can be waived as well. So you wanna look at that whichever side of the fence you're on. Uh, last point I wanna make, and that's this one. There's a difference between immunity and privilege although courts sometimes treat them as the same thing. They're not. 
Legislative immunity generally means there is protection from being civilly sued, right? Legislative privilege means one need not be compelled or can't be compelled to give testimony or evidence. Generally, the doctrine of legislative immunity stands for the proposition that legislators have absolute protection from civil liability and an evidentiary testimonial privilege to be free from being forced to testify in civil cases. But you'll find in the reported decisions that courts sometimes speak of immunity and privilege interchangeably or as one in the same. You'll see a case in the show notes. It's called Marylanders for Fair Representation, where the court in that case used the term testimonial legislative immunity. Uh, there's no such thing. It's either immunity or it's privilege. Sometimes in a case, the both will attach to the given witness. Uh, but again, um, immunity and privilege are really different concepts. Immunity tends to be more absolute. Privilege, sometimes not. That's the Pataki case. So unless you're trying to sue someone who acts in a legislative capacity, the notion of legislative immunity is really irrelevant. So watch out for lawyers that um, hand you a stack of cases talking about legislative immunity and suggest that that concept means the witness can't be deposed. That's a very different concept from legislative privilege. So immunity, more or less absolute. Privilege, not so much. You can ask a privilege-bearing witness an awful lot of questions uh, to which the privilege would not apply. But either way, the argument to make if a privilege applies is that you should be allowed to depose the witness subject to instructions not to answer by the witness's lawyer on an individual question-by-question -question basis and that the entire deposition should not be prohibited. Do not let adversaries discourage you from deposing privilege-bearing witnesses. There are often no good alternatives to what they know, and the law clearly allows you to do so in many circumstances. So go after them. All right, to wrap up, it's not the title of the person whose testimony you want that ultimately determines the issue. What matters is the nature of the action in question. Is it legislative? Is it more administrative? And some courts have said that legislators even act in a quasi-judicial capacity. And if that's the situation in your case, then the legislative privilege against testifying does not apply. All right, that's it for this episode. As always, thank you so much for listening. And be sure to check out the book on which this podcast is based. That's the third edition of 10,000 Depositions Later, the premier litigation guide for superior deposition practice, available just about everywhere you get your books. And one last request, if you have an extra 30 seconds, would you swing by the spot wherever you get your podcasts that allows you to rate a show and leave us a five-star rating and maybe a comment if there's something in a particular episode that you really liked or something about the show that you'd like to share with others that might encourage others to uh, subscribe and listen to the podcast. As you know, this podcast is completely free and we plan on keeping it that way. So those ratings help keep our production staff in high spirits and it makes all the difference in the world to each of us. Have a great week and thanks again for listening. We'll talk to you soon.